And collider collider bias seems like the kind of bias that would sneak you out of eighth grade and take you fishing. <laughs> Epidemiology, a new podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Haley Bannock from the University at Buffalo, and I am pleased to be co-hosting this podcast with Dr. Matt Fox from Boston University. Today, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Maria Gleemore from the University of California, San Francisco to Sirius Epi. The substantive focus of Maria's research is cognitive aging and dementia, as well as social epidemiology. She does a lot of work related to epi methods and causal inference, and if you haven't read her chapter on DAGs in the third edition of Modern Epi, I highly recommend you take a look at it. She's been a longtime advocate for using DAGs to represent causal hypotheses and describe potential biases in proposed analyses. So, welcome, Maria. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. Or here, in quotes. Yeah, quote. <laughs> Online together. Yes. Today, we're lucky to have Maria with us to talk about asking good study questions. So we'll be talking about issues like why it's important to ask a good study question and how we can all ask better study questions. So before we get started, we always like to start off with a few less serious questions. We like to add some fun stuff uh, to get to know you a bit better and so our guests, our, our listeners can get to know you a bit better. So to start off, tell us something about you that most listeners wouldn't know. Well, I don't know who your listeners are, so... It might be that my mom is your major listener. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but assuming that there are more random epi folks listening, people may not know that I grew up in rural Oklahoma, and mm. I grew up right next door to my grandparents. And by rural, I don't mean like suburban, really rural. My grandpa had a huge garden and used to grow black-eyed peas for me. And my big brother once snuck me out of middle school to take me fishing, which I feel is like a trope for rural childhoods <laughs> and I just for the record so there's no confusion it's not that I actually enjoy fishing I don't like fishing much at all but I do really like my brother and I didn't really like eighth grade so all in all it's a very warm memory oh that's definitely something I didn't know about you that's cool tell us what would you say is your guilty pleasure uh well more people may know this about this me because they may have caught me in reading murder mysteries, maybe in a hallway during grad school, and I've been busted a few times when probably I should have been doing regression analyses, and instead I was reading about who killed him. So not particularly violent murder mysteries. Do you have a favorite series? I have a genre, and then I'll move through through different, like I'll go through all of them until I get bored. So like Nevada Bar, I really like. She's murder mystery set in national parks. I like reading anything, and so I am going to check those out because I've never heard about that. Next question from our fun series, um, fun for, you know, epi nerds. What would you say is the coolest bias? You know, this. I feel like this is a very contentious question, mm -hmm. and almost anything I say, I'm going to alienate some folks. Tensions are high mm -hmm. on this issue. There are a lot of really great biases to choose from, so just by choosing one, I don't want to dis diss the others, but I, I just really have a weakness for collider bias. It's, mm -hmm. it's just the one that really twists your brain. It's the one that's so surprising. I really, I'd have to go with collider bias if you made me choose just one. And collider, collider bias seems like the kind of bias that would sneak you out of eighth grade and take you fishing. <laughs> Could actually get you kicked out of eighth grade if you like used it correctly. <laughs> probably right. Probably right. 
It's all about how you use it. <laughs> well, I shared the love of that bias, as Matt and all our listeners should know by this point, because every podcast I talk about how much I love it and how difficult it is to understand. Uh, so I, I'm in that with you. Okay, great. I really enjoyed learning a little bit more about you. So now we're going to get into the, the real, the hard stuff. So this is a podcast about asking good study questions. And I think, you know, to start broadly, why is it important to ask good study questions? Why should we even care about this topic? Well, I think we're all here basically because we care about public health and we care about improving population health and reducing health inequalities. And so asking a good question is essential to actually doing useful research. And when I think about this, I encourage early career researchers to really think through what are the most important questions from a public health perspective. And by important, I could mean if we answer this question, we will immediately know something about a new policy or an intervention or treatment that will make people healthier. So that's one version of important. Another version of important is if we answer this question, it will change how we understand the mechanisms and processes that lead to differences in in health and inequalities in health. And that's more along the lines of a theoretical insight. It may not be immediately useful in the sense of we know something new that we can do tomorrow, but it will help us build a richer understanding of the drivers of population health that ultimately we can leverage to um, improve health. And so both types of questions, I think, are very important. I find in Epi, it's often harder to ask the questions that are going to be immediately useful and a little bit easier to figure out the questions that would help build theory eventually be useful. And there's also often a tension between questions that, if answered, would have the most public health relevance and questions that we actually, it's clear how you could answer it well. And that tension, I think, comes up a lot for people. And in social Epi, I think it's a real tension. I guess I would put a third bucket of question, which is a little is a little bit different than that I think of as essentially enabling change. They're questions that are really about changing how we view a problem. It's not necessarily revealing causal mechanisms, but drawing attention to something. And I give as examples of, of those kinds of papers, Steffi Wilhandler and um, David Hamelstein's work on a few different things, but for example, medical bankruptcy, in which they just showed how commonly medical conditions are a contributor to when people declare bankruptcy. And I consider these really just call to action papers. They're not necessarily revealing causal mechanisms as much as they are making people committed to to a topic. I don't do very many of those kinds of questions, but I think they're important to acknowledge. And it seems to me that what you're getting at with that last one are really, in a way, descriptive epidemiology. Yeah, that's right. And how important it seems to me that descriptive epi can actually be, you know, in talking about COVID, so much of the work that has been impactful with COVID has really been descriptive epi. And I wonder whether we actually do a disservice by not emphasizing descriptive epi enough and the importance of asking good descriptive epi questions. I think there's no question that those are very important and they can be very, they can really change the conversation. Just understanding the basic outlines of a problem can really change the conversation about it and people's sense of urgency around addressing it. When I think about the the two types of questions that you described, the first two types of questions about immediately knowing whether an intervention is going to make a difference or the second type, which is more of the understanding the mechanisms and processes. Do you see this as sort of a a two-step process? Do you need to figure out an answer to one type of question before you can proceed to the next type of question? Or do you see these as, as independent lines of questioning that can occur? I think that actually, although in some ideal world, maybe they would be sequential, but I think the reality is that either type of question, we we often have an idea of a policy or an intervention that we think might work and we don't know why. And, and still just giving the answer yes or no, it works, is really useful. And then there's a, there's a sort of follow-up question that is really interesting that's about why 
And if we understood the mechanisms, that might enable us to see other policies that could be really important. But I don't think that, that the reality of the world is such that we always have to go in sequence where we build theory that implies a policy, then we try the policy and see if it works. I think it's actually much more dynamic and back and forth in terms of how we build knowledge. It's funny because I expected you to answer in the reverse. I expected you your answer to be about how we look at the mechanisms and you know see what is going on, and then from that can build an intervention based on our understanding of the mechanism. But I think it's really interesting that you raised it from a social epi perspective in the reverse of that. So I, yeah, I, I guess our, our minds think about questions in a bit of a different way. I really think both directions are very very relevant. Yeah, I I suppose it depends on the type of question and research area that you're working in. Well, this also relates to the question of what kind of question can you answer well? And sometimes you're just constrained and you think about what might matter that you could answer well. And it could be either type of question, a theory building question or a immediate action kind of question. So we had Daniel Westreich on a short while ago on the podcast. And when we asked him what his favorite bias was, he said, asking the right question bias. <laughs> Do you think that asking the right question or getting the question right is uh, one of the biggest problems that we face in epi? I would say that is the biggest problem, not just for epidemiology, but for all of science. When you think about brilliant science, it's they figured out how to write, how to ask a very important question. So I, I would agree with Daniel on that. It's not our only problem, sadly. But <laughs> Do you think that epidemiologists ask the wrong question a lot? My read of the literature is that we are often asking questions that are not of sufficient importance, probably, to be putting them front and center, but also that we're asking questions that we're not actually answering with the data that we have in front of us. And so we think we're getting answers to questions, but we're not. I, I don't know if that's your experience. I guess I think it's very hard to generalize about how epidemiology as a whole does, because I think that there are some examples that are tremendous and really powerful. So when you think about about reduction of lead exposure and the impacts of lead exposure on um, children's cognitive development, those are like Herb Needleman's and many others' work. Those are very important questions, and I'm really proud that, that they were addressed in a rigorous approach. Mm. Other examples, like I think in social epi, the Michael Marmot and, and colleagues in the Whitehall studies, which really address this question of would you see social inequalities in health in a setting where everybody had health insurance? I think that's a really important, important question. One of the reasons I'm slow to be willing to condemn a large swath of epi to describing it as irrelevant is because I think from the outside, it's often very difficult to understand the relevance of the the question. Mm. And that is especially because some questions are not going to be answered in one paper. They're not going to even be answered in one year or five years. They're going to be answered over an arc of building evidence over a decade. And so any given paper may be doing a tiny little slice of that that's really showing this tool works or this this is how you do this piece. And then from the outside, it's hard to understand why that's important. I'm going to mention another paper, which is not hard to understand why it's important, but it is an example of really building, evaluating a tool and the importance of it, I think, was far grander than its actual application in that particular paper, which is Miguel Hernan's work on in the wake of hormone replacement trials, showing that the, the trials and the observational studies found discrepant results. That was a huge problem, not just for that substantive topic. It was a huge problem about the validity of our research designs, because the observational evidence seems so solid. And so for Miguel to come in and say, oh, actually, this is not something fundamental about our data source. It's not something fundamental about our research design. This is about how you can do this right if you do the analysis this way. 
that was a huge step forward. And I think of it as a huge step forward for social epidemiology, even though there was nothing social in the in his work. So that's a place where the importance of the work is far beyond what is exactly in that paper. And I think sometimes that's the case. I do think that there is a tension between asking questions that you think you can rigorously answer and asking the questions that are most important. And because there's so much pressure on people to publish, especially early career researchers, but really there's just a lot of pressure to publish. There's a lot of pressure to pull a question, to choose a question that you that is answerable and answerable within a short period of time. In some ways, of course, we should be asking questions that, that we can address. In the other ways that often, it makes me nervous, for example, when you see papers where the primary motivation appears to be, this is not previously known. We have never, nobody's <laughs> asked this question before. So that's why we're doing the, this research question. Really what you want to see in a, in an introduction is motivating a question as this is important because somebody else could use this evidence to make a different decision. Some policymaker could use it to say, is this a good policy? Some individual could say, is this a healthy behavior? Some clinician could say, is this a good way to treat people? Or because it's going to help us advance this theoretical understanding, we have this gap in, in this, we don't understand how people come to be sick or how populations come to be sick. And this research will help us understand that. So certainly I think there's, there are plenty of studies where people have not really thought through exactly how the evidence would be used. And that's an important challenge. And I really like that because I, I think that I have certainly been in the camp of moving moving closer and closer to the point of being able to say, okay, what is the decision that has to be made that you want to be able to answer a question that will allow us to affect policy? And the truth is not all questions are designed that way. And not all questions should be designed that way because, as you say, we, we do need to build the evidence to get to that point. And sometimes those questions are the building blocks on which we will eventually get to the policy question. The first SER I attended, I think the first SER, one of the first SERs I attended, I gave a presentation. It was a very, I considered a very early result. It's very early on in the development of a research domain. And at the conclusion of my presentation, um, I'm pretty sure it was Marie Middleman asked me, so Maria, what are the policy implications of your results? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember this sense of horror that there would be any policy implications. Like, please do not take my, my little result here, which is just so preliminary. And at the time, I was embarrassed that I had no policy implications. But I also think it's appropriate to think there are a whole bunch of steps and you can be early in those steps and make a contribution. But it's important to see where you are and, and recognize that they're actually you are building a bridge to something that, that somebody could use that evidence. Okay, is that is that a rite of passage? Because the, I have the exact same experience <laughs> of one of the first presentations I ever gave. And it was all about uh, using viral load for HIV in breast milk in, in South Africa. And this was in the days before anyone could afford to use viral load in, in routine care. And so someone raised their hand and said, well, given that we can't afford viral load, what's the, what's the policy implication? And I just sort of I slunk down behind the podium and just sort of tried to change the subject. So, okay, I'm feeling so much better. Thank you. Well, maybe that goes to the issue of are we really giving people training to think this through so we could understand, so that everybody could answer that question. One of the really interesting things I've done in the past year or few years has been involved in this uh, this Evidence for Action grant making program, which is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And what is interesting is that it really aims to find research that is at that last step of if we knew the answer to this, somebody could do something differently. And what a tiny slice of research is really right there, that if we answer this question, we would really know something that would change behavior or change policy. It, it also gets to the, the distinction between policy-relevant research and 
research that ends with a policy recommendation because you can have research that would inform decisions that need to be made, but it doesn't mean the decision is obvious and it requires other skills to be able to assess that. I don't have a similar type of experience behind a podium. Maybe <laughs> your training was better. <laughs> <laughs> obvious my research does not have direct policy implications so maybe people don't ask me that (laughs) but when you talk about how sometimes you read a paper and you are a bit appalled at the beginning when they say well this has never been done before therefore we need to do it I get appalled at the end where they've done something which is you know a preliminary result of 80 people or you know they they say you know this is a first step and then they say but this is going to change medical practice for Mm. all time and it's going to eliminate health disparities and and i am saving the world with this paper i think that is a a way worse sin in my books and so i really respect both of you even if you didn't have an answer and hated it at the time for not having an answer to that question because i think that's one of the most important things that i would love for people to understand after listening to this podcast is there are different types of questions that you can answer and different Uh, results that you get from from different questions that you ask and not every question is going to have that direct policy changing impact that maybe we wish we could have but that's just not how our science works agreed so when we talk about you know asking good questions i think it's something that we all probably agree it could be improved in our training program and it's not you know as much of a focus as it perhaps should be and so when you talk about asking good questions do you think it's more important to focus on is this an important question to ask or do you think it's more important to focus on is this a question that can be answered what do you see as the distinction between those two types of questions? I think it's really important to consider both issues. As a social epidemiologist, I encourage people to sort of own up to the question that you'd like to answer, even if you do not think you're going to be able to answer it well right now. I think it's very helpful to say, to clearly state your motivation, your larger motivating question, because it helps you understand what the steps are you need to be able to answer that question, even if what's feasible for you right now is much smaller and narrower. And that thinking about the building blocks, like in in the basic sciences, we take for granted that people will spend a long time developing tools or developing reagents, developing methods before they finally get to do the experiment that they really want to do. You don't just walk into a bench science setting and, and that day do your, your fancy molecular genetics experiment. In the same sense with epidemiology, I think to do really good science, we often have a lot of steps that we need to build up to be able to answer the question, the ideal question. So I think it's worth saying, this is the ideal question. This is how I can move the evidence base forward towards answering it. There's no use in, in posing a question that simply cannot be answered or is not really amenable to to answering. I have a very broad vision of what actually is amenable to evidence. That's been a point of debate uh, with some colleagues, but I think it's worth saying this is the big picture motivating question, and these are the pieces that we can do with what we have access to. And thinking about where you are in your career, you may have access to very, very different sets of tools. You may have access to only the data that you can that is publicly available, or you may have, have access to millions and millions of dollars to field a trial. So, so feasibility matters. But I think for most questions, you can think about a piece that we can move forward that's feasible. I'm really taken with the idea of triangulation because I think it helps us think through this about what parts would be a complement right now that are that are actually doable. 
So if we're if we're talking about good questions and, and hoping that uh, at the end of listening to this podcast, maybe people could think about how do I ask a better question? So what does it mean to ask a good question? So are there specific components that you think, you know, somebody should be sure to have in their research question? I think it's worth thinking about from both, like I think of this in both directions, like who's going to use the evidence and how are you going to generate the evidence and working backwards from both settings. So if you think about who could possibly use the evidence, that will help you inform how to define exposure, for example. So just to give an example, there's a lot of social equity research on housing and, and healthy outcomes, like stable housing and healthy outcomes. And at some point I was talking to this to somebody about the policy levers that they had available to address housing. And he said, well, really we have tax policy. So if you want to be help, if you want to give us policy relevant information, you have to tell us about tax policy that we can use to change housing access, which, you know, we never, I've done lots of studies on housing, but I've never done a study on tax policy relevant to housing. So just thinking that way about who's going to use this evidence is really helpful to be able to, to work backwards to say what's a useful question. But then you also have to think forwards about what what data do I have and, and what could I what could I do well with with this data. So I think that one of the biggest challenges is really defining your exposure in a way that you care, that is relevant, that is meaningful. And it's important to recognize that there's sort of an arc of research and at the beginning of a research arc, we may want to have a more broad brush definition of the exposure. But as we move forward, we want to have a more specific definition of an exposure that would more clearly align with specific action. One example that is relevant in my own research is the example of education. So we think that there are educational inequalities in nearly every domain of health. And we may start off by saying, well, does having a high school degree improve outcomes? But then notice that actually in our data, having a high school degree, it, it's it really entails not just that you completed 12 years of school, but there's a difference between completing 12 years of school at a high, at a place that has very high quality education versus 12 years of school in uh, in rural Oklahoma, for example. <laughs> um, and and it's, there may be a difference in completing schooling at a place where they're providing access to healthy foods versus a place where there's no access to healthy foods. And of course, it's also relevant what education is displacing. So if education is displacing work in an occupation, in an occupation that's hazardous to your health, that might be a very different thing than education that is, is just displacing uh, whatever, uh, watching TV or something. So then drilling down into what you really mean by your exposure, I think, is a very important aspect of defining a good, a good research question. And then I think that it's also important to say sort of where is the evidence base right now? And there's a lot of emphasis on replication, which I think is great. Like reproducibility, I think is very important. However, reproducibility is just step one of really answering your big picture question. So if there have been numerous studies essentially replicating the same result in a study design with exactly the same assumptions, it's really not that useful to do one more study with those exact same assumptions and find the same finding. At that point, it's more useful to either find a design that doesn't rely on those same assumptions, so you can try to triangulate the evidence that way, or directly assess those assumptions so you can see whether or not you would trust the previous studies. And so there, to define, to define a, a useful research question, you want to really position yourself into, into the arc of research overall and where the evidence base is. So do you then encourage students to take a look at problems that we have evidence already, but maybe not conclusive, not completely conclusive evidence and have them try to look at it you know, with a new design or from a new angle to really try and get at whether or not these findings stand up? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the challenges that graduate students often have is they have a sort of set of exposure outcome combination that they're interested in, and then they go look at the literature, and then they come back and say, oh, it's already been done. And I was like, well, it was done in one cross-sectional study in this highly selected population. Like, do you think that maybe we could add to that evidence base? Like, would it be useful to do a longitudinal study? Or would it be useful to do a study with a more diverse sample? Would it be useful to do a study that was not exactly based on this measure of that exposure, like a self-reported measure of that exposure instead, can we get administrative data? So I think that's, that understanding where the science is and what the limitations of the science so far is essential to defining good research questions. I guess that's a part that goes with, with our standard training in EPI, which is find all the limitations of the previous research. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm struck in your answer by this idea of how important domain-specific or, you know, contextual substantive knowledge is. Because as epidemiologists, I know many of our training programs give us that advanced methods type training. We all, you know, know how to pick apart any kind of study that, that we can find and, and find the flaws. But it's less common, I think, in my opinion, to have substantive courses in our training because the field is so diverse. So how do you reconcile the need for advanced training with the need for substantive knowledge to do meaningful research and needing people to graduate in a, a reasonable amount of time? I mean, you can't <laughs> stay in, hopefully you won't be in doctoral school for 10 years. I mean, it's possible, but, you know, that's not most people's dream. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's relevant to say there's some things that you're not going to be the expert in and you really need colleagues. And I think EPI is a great setting for collaborative science. But I also think it's important to take the time to learn a little bit about your domain. And you may not be the world's content expert, but you should understand it well enough to understand what the big debates are in that in that field and what's relevant and why people believe what they believe, if there is a reason that they believe what they believe. And I, I think it's worth the time. And actually, I think that is a topic of some frustration for students, that it really is worth a little bit of time to learn in more depth. I think, for example, good training grants, you think of good training grants as having like a substantive aim, a methods aim, and, and another aim, like in terms of training aims. And I think there's a reason for that. I think it's very appropriate that you should say, I want to understand the substance better. Yeah, and I think that that is how we are going to advance each of our respective fields, right? It's not just with the fancy methods we are going to be able to answer and ask good questions. This reminds me of another debate a little bit outside of uh, what we're talking about today, but with the emergence of undergraduate public health programs and mm -hmm. how that is going to shape the future of research questions and the future of epidemiology, because these are going to be students that are fantastically trained in a lot of very interesting issues. Issues, but they may not have the same substantive background as somebody who comes out of a biology program or whatever. I did my undergrad in kinesiology, and I think that in part shaped my interest in obesity and inactivity. And, and so I, I do wonder about how these new undergraduate programs, which often directly lead into master's programs in public health or epidemiology, are going to uh, influence the field in the future. Yeah, I, I, that's a very interesting question. I love public health. Like I, I wish that there was a really great epi and public health training throughout our our educational system but I, I don't think we've worked through quite what the what those are going to do to the training path i don't know that we have the best training path that like we could modify the epi training path a lot and have it be good i think that's another another day <laughs> 
<laughs> another podcast for another day. <laughs> um, something that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I know you and I have spoken about previously, is about the role of DAGs or directed acyclic graphs in epidemiologic research and how DAGs might be a helpful tool for people who want to create good study questions. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? I am a huge proponent of DAGs. Of course, I think these are extremely useful and just like so straightforward, like almost some of the fuss about it, I don't even understand because it's so clearly useful. And when you think about questions about total effects, questions about mechanisms, questions about even questions about modifiers, I, I think the DAGs are very, very helpful. And sometimes drawing a DAG will really clarify what you've been thinking about. Just like sometimes writing forces you to clarify what you thought was clear in your head, but wasn't quite. When you try to write it down, you realize um, in the same way, when you try to draw a DAG, you, under- you recognize some muddleness in your head that you have to clarify. And I think DAGs are incredible to, to help communicate between people and uh, with subject matter experts. That said, they're not, in- they're not miraculous. Like they're not going to give you <laughs> new ideas. Like the DAG you draw is constrained by what's in your brain. And so if you have a wrong view about the set of possible DAGs, that's just going to be represented in your in your DAGs. So I definitely think they're useful, but I don't think they're going to be radically help you step forward into asking better questions. I guess they can help you with particularly dumb questions, but... <laughs> what? but... Why, why, why did you look at me? <laughs> Matt, we're on video conference. Why do you think I'm looking at you? <laughs> Just a feeling. I could just sense it. So, so I okay. So I have I have a I have a DAG question though because I'm curious. When did you start using DAGs? That's a long story. But in public health research, I started using DAGs. I guess you know I, I'd really gotten through most of my masters, and I went to Jamie Robbins' class, and I was astonished by collider bias. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it, and I couldn't believe that I hadn't learned about it. And and so that was really compelling to me. So then then that that view. But I had been exposed to DAGs before then. The reason I'm asking is I was I was not exposed to DAGs until my doctoral training, and I my sense is that that is moving earlier and earlier. And I actually do wonder whether earlier training in DAGs is going to help students start asking better questions earlier because they'll have that visual understanding of the data generating mechanism, at least as far as they understand it, that'll really help them kind of think through what it is they're trying to ask. Maybe I'm overinflating it, but I do wonder. Yeah, I think it's. I think they're really useful. I, I don't mean in any way to dismiss DAGs. Like I, th- I think they're really useful, and they should be integrated throughout our training. And the linking of DAGs with data generating and even incorporating simulations is part of training and how we think about incorporating tying simulations to analytic tools. To me, seems really valuable in terms of training. But still, at the end of the day, if you didn't think to measure racism. You're not going to think to put it on your DAG and you're not going to think to ask about what's the effect of racism. And having DAGs as a tool is not going to miraculously enable you to do that. It's just a it's just a tool that is applicable if, you're, if your research is on racism, yep. but it's not a panacea for thinking about the stuff that matters. I think in graduate school, DAGs play a very important role also as a communication tool, as you mentioned. And as a student, mm. me creating a particular DAG is what's in my head, but then taking that DAG to your supervisor who might say to you, that doesn't make any sense at all. Or you've missed a really important arrow from here to there. Or why is there an arrow from here to there? And I think that those sorts of discussions really help with advancing a good question because you are sort of collaborating 
operating on a piece of paper in front of you uh, in a concrete way that will make you think about things in different ways. And I think that that is a terrific way that a supervisor and a student can communicate with each other rather than just sort of having this discussion about what should I include or why is it important to include a particular variable. If you see that conditioning on something is going to cause collider bias, it's never more clear than in the DAG in front of you. Yeah. So I, I think that there's a, a real role for them in training in, in that perspective as well. Absolutely. So bias is a topic that I know all three of us really share as an interest. And I, I'm always interested in how asking good questions might be a useful tool to avoiding specific sources of bias, or maybe asking good questions can help us uncover sources of bias. Do you think that's true? Do you think the issue of asking good questions is related to bias? It's a little bit of a, depends on how you, de, like what you say are the boundaries of what is the research question versus the specific analytic plan. But I think that asking a good question goes beyond simply designing an, a, a study without bias or avoiding, avoiding bias. Because I think that you can have a very beautiful and unbiased answer to a question that you didn't really need the answer to. And so it's important to not just focus on, can I get this without bias? But if I got this without bias, would anybody want to know, know my evidence? And there is a real tension between being just driven by design cleverness as opposed to what what are important public health questions. And I think it's worth resisting that and trying very hard to say this is actually the important public health question, even if my bit is only a little bit towards that that goal. So overlapping, but not the same. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. And do you think that there's specific types of bias, let's say measurement related biases or selection bias, let's say, do you think that asking a good question, creating a DAG to really think through that question, do you think that in really laying out your question properly, you can think ahead to avoid getting into a situation where you are inadvertently including bias in your, your study? Well, definitely, I think representing what you understand about the problem helps you anticipate the biases you are likely to encounter. And drawing the DAG often helps me recognize things that I didn't really, until I sat down to draw it, I didn't really see that this was going to be an issue. So yes, I think it's definitely, it's definitely useful. But still, you, I think you are constrained by the substance matter and what you've thought about the substance matter. So Nancy Krieger has a critique of epi textbooks that they are just missing theoretical foundations. And I think that's a very legitimate critique in the sense that mm-hmm. a big part of epi should be understanding the field that you're, that you're working in. Like fundamentally, what, what are the plausible drivers of differences in, in health between populations. And if you don't have that in mind, your DAG just doesn't represent those things and doesn't get you there. It's an important piece laying that out really clearly and thinking that, that being engaged in the larger literature, I think, is essential for, for asking good questions. The critique that Nancy Krieger has about theory, I think she's so right on that. I think that that is certainly something that was lacking in my training, and it was much more about what are the methods by which we get quantitative answers to questions and less about why we would ever think that that exposure should affect that outcome in the first place. I think if we got back to some of the basics of theory, we might avoid some bad questions. Yeah, I agree with that. But it's it's tough, (laughs) in part because epi is so heterogeneous and so big. But it's a little bit shocking how little time is dedicated in training. And there is obviously limited time in training programs, but still, that seems to me to be a fundamental one. 
I've been thinking about this issue about asking study questions more recently and with all the COVID papers that have been coming out. I mean, I haven't been able to read most of them, but you know, when I see a paper that's about do patients with obesity and COVID do worse if they've been on a ventilator for 60 days in the hospital? So you think about this type of question and how I wish that they had taken the time to think about what the implications of these results are in terms of who these results are generalizable to. So do you think asking good study questions influences the generalizability and sort of the broader implications your questions have for public health? Is that is that an issue that we should be concerned about? Yeah, I, th- I think that from the beginning, conceptualizing your question has to really incorporate a recognition of inequalities and how inequalities in modifiers, so how your exposure, which you may think of as neutral, may have different effects for different people and different populations, and how heterogeneity in, in the whole population will influence what you find. And I think we should be thinking about that from the very beginning in terms of what's an important study question, like why would you care about this thing? So if it's a very common exposure, <laughs> that everybody's exposed to versus a very rare exposure that might influence how important you think the problem is and how you would design the study and what you would think was a compelling data source and and study design. So I think that we shouldn't be thinking about generalizability as the last thing you do. We should be thinking about generalizability when we're choosing a question. And it may be that we make sacrifices on generalizability in any particular analysis, but the concerns about how is this going to actually impact population health should always be part of our framing our questions. And I'm curious because you're a social epidemiologist. I'm curious whether your way of looking at this might be different from the way another person's might be because social epidemiologists come at problems that we're trying to solve with this very wide lens that's always thinking about the different inequalities that exist and the factors that may modify the effects of various interventions. We've talked to other social epidemiologists who've kind of given us the, you know, basically everything is is social epi and you should be thinking about social epi in, in all studies. And I'm wondering if that influences the way that you think about generalizability? Maybe, but I am with the view that everyone should be thinking about that. I mean, maybe there are a few settings, but I think for the most part, whatever you're working on, you should be thinking about how is this going to affect people in general? And that's a question about generalizability. And we make compromises in terms of specific analyses, but I think that should drive almost everything. And if you don't, you really risk asking these questions that are just not that important. They're just very narrowly relevant, which, you know, is maybe that's fine. But if your goal is to ask a question that matters... Start out by thinking about how it will affect people in general and inequalities. And and I don't just mean social inequalities. Like I think of epidemiology as the study of population differences in health. So epi is intrinsically a study about inequalities. I do think this is a, a bit of a shift in the in the field, though, because I was certainly remember from my training the the idea that internal validity is what matters, external validity comes later, and you know you don't have to think about generalizability until you know we've gotten to the point of being able to really say we know there's cause and effect. And now it seems to me there's a whole school of thought that's saying actually we need to kind of be thinking about both at the same time. And I think that's going to require a, mi- a change in mindset for some, but it seems to me a step in the right direction. 
I think that's a still a very live argument that's happening yeah. in in the field, and it's it's actually important to disentangle people's incentives to make the research that they can do the relevant research from what would we most want. So I think around UK Biobank has been a really interesting debate because the selection process into UK Biobank was pretty strong. Everybody would would agree there was a lot of selection, but does it mean that we get the wrong answers? Is a very lively debate, and I think for many topics, we get the right answers. I think for many topics, all that selection, it didn't really matter. But for some topics, it probably does. And we don't know the boundaries. We don't know the boundaries there. So I think it's a step in the right direction. But I don't think that that argument is done. I mean, it was only how many years ago was it? Maybe eight years ago when IJE published their big debate and they couldn't get anybody to say representative samples were important. And (laughs) (laughs) so I don't think we're done with the, the argument. I mean, Obviously, you don't necessarily have to have a representative sample to evaluate or achieve generalizability, but it's helpful. Yeah. Okay. One last question, um, and it's a a social epi question for you, since you're focused on that research area, but I think it does apply more broadly, so I'm not just picking on on social epi here. A few years back in 2012, Sam Harper and Aaron Strum uh, from McGill wrote a commentary about asking good questions in social epi, and they called it questionable answers and answerable questions. One of the things they talked about is a, a gap between the questions policymakers want answered and the kinds of questions social epidemiologists have been answering. So my question is, what do you think the role of epidemiologists is in asking questions that are relevant for health policy? I know this is something we've talked a little bit about, you know, in the past hour or so, but I think it it deserves a specific mention about how our research informs health policy and whether that should be a a priority or, you know, something we want to focus on in our research. Yeah. I mean, I think Sam and Aaron's critique is great. I mean, and it does really fit with this arc of research and the distinction between research that that is really kind of like policy shovel ready. We're going to produce evidence that some is going to use tomorrow versus research that's building up. I think both types are important because doing that policy-ready analysis is so hard. I think that having pressure on the field to move that direction is, is valuable. I think that Sandra Glea's consequential epi is, is sort of in that vein. But in terms of your specific question, first, I would say health policy, I just want to emphasize health policy is so much broader than health care policy. And so health policy should include things like policies regulating housing access or ensuring housing access, policies shaping transit, policies shaping the environment, policies shaping employment and financial security, education. All of these are really within the purview of health policy. And I can't think of anything more useful for epidemiologists to do than asking questions that are relevant for creating those policies. And some may critique the idea that, that this is advocacy, but it's quite different than advocacy. It's it's about evidence. Policy will, will be made, whether made and proclaimed a policy or made de facto by the absence of a policy. There will be policies. And we as a field, I think a priority for us should be creating evidence that could potentially be used to guide those policies that will have an impact on health and health inequalities. I do agree completely with that. Not that social epi is my research, (laughs) but I don't have much to add because I I just want to say I'm with you on that. I think it's an undervalued aspect of the research that we do. It's not just about, you know, exposure X and outcome Y. It's about what are the broader implications of what I'm studying? You know, otherwise you're just sort of, I just am sitting behind a desk all day typing away and and it has no broader meaning for anything in the world. And that's, that's not of interest. (laughs) Well, we, I mean, if you just cared about 
all the partial correlation coefficients, we could have just programmed those mm -hmm. and run them in advance, just like do all the conditional correlations and conditional regressions and be done with it. It's really only when it's linked to a larger understanding of who could use the evidence and what theory it challenges or advances that it's useful. Yeah, and as a you know junior faculty member, I think this has never been more clear to me than when writing grant applications, because <laughs> it's not enough to have a good question. It's not really enough to have a, a neat method to do this. They really want to see, I think, I haven't been funded yet, but I think, um, <laughs> what is this research going to do? What is it going to impact? Why should I give you this money to, to look at this question? And I think that very much relates to the idea that our research is supposed to do something. It's supposed to inform something. Otherwise, it's just research for research, and nobody really wants to give you millions of dollars to do that. <laughs> Okay, so that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. I really learned a lot uh, in this discussion. So we loved having you and, and maybe we'll have you back again in the future to talk about other social epi related topics. So thank you, Maria. Thank you. It was so much fun. To, it's just really fun to chat with you and good luck with the podcast. I'm excited that you're doing it. So take care. Thank you. So uh, just one last thing. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epi Research, I strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in December in Boston. It also gets you access to the SER library, which you can find uh, some great learning materials, some seminars and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast, Casual Associations from the American Journal of Epidemiology by Ellie Murray and Lucy D'Agostino-McGowan. We really appreciate you listening and uh, hope you look out for our episode next month. Take care. Music.